Good morning, everyone. How many of us know that today is the product of yesterday and that many of our concerns in the present are filled with fears about the future? That's why we're so interested in predictions, are we not? That's why we're so fascinated with forecasts. That's why so often our daily conversation with our friends, our family, our neighbors, our workmates, or even our internal struggles, doubts, and anxieties are filled with questions about what the future holds. How many of us on a daily basis turn to a website, turn to the local news, or turn to some app on your phone to find out the weather forecast? Almost every one of us, right? And that's what made Thursday so interesting, did it not? We all woke up that morning, for the most part, hearing a forecast that, yeah, you might get a little bit of wintry mix up in North Jersey. But literally, the forecast here in Colts Neck on my weather.com phone app was just for rain and nothing but rain all day. So you can imagine when I'm looking at my phone, which is predicting the weather for the future, and I walk out to the front of the church and I am getting pummeled with not water, but with what? Snow. I'm looking at my phone, and all of our modern-day technology, all of our scientists, all of our meteorologists are saying rain, and then I look up at reality, and it's snow. Now, my reality was a lot easier than a lot of yours. We had one person on Saturday night, who it took him seven hours to get home from his work on Thursday. We have anybody longer than seven hours here? Anybody longer than seven hours in that snowy, messy mush? See, what happens is, is that when we get the forecast wrong, when we have blind faith in things that haven't always proven to be true or accurate, there are consequences. People were stranded, stranded in their car, stranded on bridges, stranded in schools. I mean, think of this. Children had to sleep overnight in schools because their parents literally could not get them. And that's why all of our state officials and all of our meteorologists are just saying, listen, we were not prepared. We were not prepared. You know, Jesus speaks to this interesting truth. He said this back in Matthew 16, verse 3. He said, and this was a rebuke to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the scribes. He said, you know how to interpret the weather, but you do not know how to interpret the signs of the times. So it would seem this Thursday was a reminder that we don't even know how to interpret the weather. Some days, even our best instruments and our most advanced technology gets it wrong. Now, when we come to the Bible, we remember that the Bible truly is remarkable. 39 different writers, over three continents written during a period of 1,500 years, telling one story. Amazing. But so much of your Bible is not just story, not just poetry, not just laws, but prophecy. There's some people that say even 10,000 verses of this Bible is about future events. And what truly is astounding and speaks to 
the clarity, sufficiency, and authenticity of your Bible is its predictive prophetic power. Over and over again, we see, even in our study of Daniel, how Daniel was given a vision of future events that now this side of history we have seen have come to fruition in exact uh, clarity. When we come to the scriptures, we are reminded that even though it seems like everything is falling apart in the world around us, what we can do is we can come to God's word and be reminded that even though everything seems like it's falling apart, no, God says it's falling right into place. Now, what's interesting is that as a culture, we are fascinated with the end. We are. If you go to the International Movie Database, they'll tell you that there have been over 679 movies made by Hollywood about the end. 679 movies about the apocalypse. And most of those, 70% of those, have come in just the last 15 years. The same thing with TV shows. So what we're seeing here is a cultural fascination with the end of all things. So my question is this, if someone comes to you and says, hey, listen, I heard this and I read this online, or I saw this movie and it said this is going to happen and this is going to happen, how as Christians would you uh, respond? Peter put it this way. He said, are you ready to give a reason for the hope that you have? Many of us, we get leery about prophecy. But to get leery about prophecy is not to understand the nature of God and to understand the purpose of prophecy. In fact, it is tragic that the culture is more interested in the end than often the church is. In fact, even as we study a chapter, which is all about this prophecy of rams and goats, the contemporary church is more interested not in what's happening in Scripture, but what's happening in uh, political power. We're more interested in partisan politics, less about rams and goats, and more about elephants and donkeys, right? <laughs> when we come to prophecy, we are reminded, even as we have studied the book of Daniel and we've heard the story of the lion's den, we have studied the fiery furnace, we've seen the handwriting on the wall. Much of this book is about kings and kingdoms, prophecy, and its fulfillment. As we study this book, I think you are going to be amazed once again of the Bible's prophetic power. But I think as we study this, you'll also be encouraged to be reminded that kingdoms rise and fall, but the kingdom of God has come, and the one who brought it is the one who will return to bring it to full fruition. Amen? Let's look at Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. I'm so excited to dive into this chapter and study it with you. Daniel chapter 8, verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. Let's pause right there and remember where we've been so we know where we're going. 
Daniel receives a vision. And when did he receive that vision? You remember Daniel chapter 6, it was a story of Daniel as an old man under a different king who was thrown into the lion's den. So now we see that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Daniel is writing the second half of his book with a different perspective, it would seem to a certain degree, than the first half of his book. That the second half of the book will focus more on prophecy. So now he's telling about a vision that he had, not under the king that threw him into lines then, but under Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar. And as Pastor Ryan taught so well about the ancient of days in chapter 7, now we're going to hear from none other than the angel Gabriel about the end of days in chapter 8. What we see is that this is two years after Daniel received that vision about the Ancient of Days. And now he's going to receive a new vision. So this isn't a dream that he sees something while he's asleep. No, this is a waking vision where he's taken from Babylon. He, out-of-body experience, is transported over the citadel in Susa, and he lands in the Ulai Canal, which is very significant. It's 200 miles away. Because what it's going to do, it's going to give him perspective about the king and the kingdom that's soon to come. So that's where we pick up the story. What's also very important here is that we see a transition. Not only it would seem an emphasis as far as historical fact, not only an emphasis as far as storytelling to prophecy, but also a transition in language. The first half, for the most part of Daniel, is written in Aramaic. So, little Bible trivia for you. The Old Testament predominantly is written in the language of? Very good. Good job. The New Testament written in the language of? Very good. I'm impressed. Daniel is interesting, though. Daniel, up until now, has been predominantly Aramaic, which makes sense about a man writing in exile because that language could carry to more people. But now we see a transition. The language goes from Aramaic to Hebrew, and I do think, while this is somewhat speculative, that it is important to say, whereas these commandments are about, these prophecies are about the whole world, God is now speaking directly to his people in a way that they can clearly hear it. Because even as the world is about to turn upside down, new kingdoms rising, new kingdoms falling, God is speaking to his people directly where they are. Let's look at verse 3, shall we? Daniel says, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. What's going to happen is Daniel is going to receive this vision about two animals, a ram and a goat. And then he's going to wrestle about what these visions mean, and then none other than the angel Gabriel is going to visit him and interpret the dream. So we know, for, uh, we know for a fact the nature and the identity of these two animals. You can turn all the way later to verse 20 
and Gabriel tells us who the ram and later who the goat will be. Gabriel says, as for the ram that you saw in verse 20 with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia in verse 21, and the goat is the king of Greece. So we have a prophecy, a vision of two animals. Why does the Lord reveal a lot of this apocalyptic imagery through animals? If you take Daniel and you take Revelation, it's often the same kind of imagery. You have animals and you have horns. Well, part of it is a mystery. I think part of it is because we are given what we need to know, and what we don't need to know, the Lord has sovereignly kept from us so we would focus on what matters most, so we wouldn't get lost too much in the minutiae that often accompanies contemporary study of prophecy. I think also this, is that what we see in the Word is God trying to communicate to people things that are beyond people's comprehension, right? So one scholar put it like this. He wrote a short essay on heaven trying to describe the glory and the majesty of heaven and God's presence, and how would you describe heaven to people here on earth? Very, very difficult. It's like describing Jupiter to an ant, right? So he uses this analogy. He says, think of it this way. Rams and goats make sense to the people in the ancient Near East. When we think rams today, we don't think about necessarily a horned animal. We think about the SUV that we drove to church this morning, right? When we hear ram and when we hear goats, they were trying to connect in a way that people would understand. So this person that wrote this essay on heaven said, think of it this way. Think of an Eskimo who lives in the Arctic and has never left the Arctic doesn't have green grass, doesn't have a garden, doesn't get to enjoy many of the vegetables and fruits that we have. Try to explain to an Arctic Eskimo how delicious a Hawaiian pineapple is. What language would you use? Well, it's like yellow, sweet, juicy whale blubber. Because <laughs> that's what makes sense in his world. These images are important and helpful to help them understand and help us understand. For example, what does a ram do? When we think ram, what do we think? Rams do what? They ram. Rams charge into things. So this kingdom is the kingdom to follow the kingdom, the most powerful kingdom in this time. Some historians believe one of the most powerful kingdoms of all times, and that is Babylon. It would have to be a powerful army with a powerful leader. So the ram, as it's saying here, is attacking in every direction, north, south, and west, and charging into its foe. So in the same way, all the way back in the beginning of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar had this vision of a statue with a golden head and all these different parts made of different metals, which prophesied the upcoming transfer of power. The golden head was Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar would fall. Next, after him, prophesied in exacting accuracy was the Medo-Persian Empire. It would rise to global power, and then it would fall. And then after that, do you remember, church? It was none other than Greece. And then after that, it would be Rome. And from Rome would rise a king and a kingdom 
whose kingdom would never, ever end. And that's none other than the Christmas story and our Jesus. This is telling the story, once again, of not only a ram and a goat, of two kingdoms that would rise and fall, but there's something going on a little deeper here. We're going to see that there's not only a transition in language, there's a transition, I would submit to you, in God's focus as far as Christ's first coming and his second coming. This is what it says about the goat, verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Verse 6. He came to the ram with two horns, with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he ran at him. Notice the language here. Ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground, trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken, Instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Let's pause right there. What is this talking about? Gabriel says it's the Grecian Empire, this empire that would come and take over the Persian Empire and would rule with greatness even more than its predecessor. Now we know that empire is not only Greece, we know that emperor is none other than Alexander the Great. So... In today's day and age, when we talk about goats, that's just not farm animals that we go visit and pets or even some of us raise, right? When we talk about the goat today in sports, what are we talking about? It's an acrostic for what? Goat, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time. Oftentimes, it's related to quarterbacks in the NFL. Sometimes it's related to LeBron James or Michael Jordan. Some people will say, LeBron is the goat. And I would say, you have never seen Michael Jordan play then. This passage says, okay, figuratively, Alexander was the goat. But if we could even apply this contemporary nomenclature, at that time, he was the greatest. They call him Alexander the Great for a reason. He rose to power, he conquered the world, and he looked around and he cried because there was no more kingdoms for him to conquer. Not many people know, though, Alexander, as quickly as he rose to power, he was also quickly taken from it. He died at the age of 33, ironically the same age that Jesus passed, right? Jesus lived to 33, so did Alexander the Great. So this is astounding. I hope everyone's hearing what I'm about to say. Because in the same way, centuries before Alexander the Great was ever born, there was a prophecy given to this Hebrew servant in Babylon that this great king would be taken from his kingdom and four smaller horns would be established to rule his kingdom. This is exactly what happened in history. You can go and read about it. The four kingdoms and the four governing kings were Ptolemy over Egypt, were Seleucus over Syria and Babylon, were 
Lysimachus over Asia Minor, and Cassander over Macedon and Greece. This really did happen with amazing accuracy. What we're about to do is we're going to hear about the nature of one of these offshoots of the Grecian Empire. And it's going to tell, I believe, a story of immediate relevance for the Hebrews in exile, but then ultimate fulfillment for something that would happen much, much later. Let's look at the text, shall we? Verse 9. Out of one of them, these four different subsets of the Grecian Empire, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and towards the, underline this, the glorious land. It grew great, even to the host of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the host, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Verse 13, Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? The transgression, this is important, that makes desolate. And the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. Verse 14, And he said to me, For twenty Three hundred evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. So, from one of these different subsets of Alexander the Great's kingdom, of this Hellenistic culture and this Grecian empire, would come a king who would persecute God's people. The glorious land is none other than the promised land, and this is referring to someone that would make a transgression of sin in relation to Jewish worship, this offering. And what this person would do would uh, lead to an impurification of the temple that one day it would need to be cleaned and restored. So if you study history, that after these kingdoms divided into four different subsets, there would be one king that would persecute the Jews more than any king before him. And he would be part of the, uh, of the kingdom that was overseeing this area. That Seleucus oversaw Syria and Babylon, but also oversaw Israel. What would happen was this man named Antiochus. Can everyone say Antiochus? We having fun learning history today? Rose to power. And he truly did despise Jewish worship in Israel. He outlawed worship of Yahweh. He outlawed circumcision. If any Jewish boy got circumcised, he would be killed. He sold thousands of Jews into slavery. But worst of all is that he took his army and he took over the temple and he took a filthy, disgusting swine and he walked into the Holy of Holies the most sacred place on planet earth. And he sacrificed a pig on the altar. True story. You can look it up. Talk to your Jewish friends. 
This is all part of their Hanukkah celebration and the Maccabean revolt. This, I believe, points to Antiochus to a certain degree. To a certain degree, what we see is Antiochus is a form of what Daniel saw. But the ultimate fulfillment only makes sense if Antiochus foreshadows none other than the Antichrist himself. And that's why Daniel, he has this vision of 2,300 days, 2,300 evenings and mornings. So there will be some that say, well, isn't it astounding that Antiochus attacked the temple and he defiled it in 168 AD? And then in just three and a half years, he was run out of Israel. The temple was restored and cleansed. As if to say, well, perhaps the 2,300 days is really just evenings and mornings, and that really just means one day for every evening and morning. So we're really talking about half of that time, and we're talking about three and a half years, and then look, it's perfect prophecy fulfilled. To which I would say, yes and amen, but there's a deeper truth. And that's why we have the second half of Daniel chapter 8. That's why the attention is now brought from not just Daniel and Babylon. No, it's taken to the very end of the age. Verse 15, let's look at it. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. When we are in church trying to understand prophecy, let us have the same spirit of Daniel. Let us try to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man, and I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Verse 19. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face on the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said here, Behold, I will make known to you which shall be at the latter end of the indignation. For it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. And he goes on to describe the power of this king. Verse 22. As for the horn that was broken in the place which four others arose, four kingdoms shall rise forth from the nation, but not with his power. And at that latter end of the kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold faith, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not his own power, and he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many. He shall rise up even against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. There is a lot there. Gabriel comes and Gabriel explains what the vision is. So it is interesting 
then Antiochus, to a certain degree, fulfills this prophecy. Whenever you understand Old Testament prophecy, there is an immediate historical relevance, but this can't be only Antiochus. Because as we saw earlier, this would-be king rises to challenge even the prince of the host of heaven and now challenges the prince of princes. Israel has no king, has no prince at this time. And then this would-be king is only brought down by God himself, not by human hands. So clearly this is not just Antiochus, but it leads to something deeper. And that's why the New Testament picks up this story and talks about it. Jesus himself saying, there is one to come that is worse than Nebuchadnezzar. There is one to come that is worse than Cyrus, worse than Darius, worse than Alexander, worse than Caesar. He will be a beast unlike anything the world has ever seen. And he will act similarly to how Antiochus did. Let's pick up the story, shall we? Let's look at these verses. Jesus himself talking in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, right before his crucifixion, right before his trial, his resurrection and his ascension, Jesus is prophesying already about his second coming. Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Jesus, here he is, it's 33 AD, and he's prophesying the end of the temple. That comes to pass in 70 AD. Rome comes and conquers Israel, destroys the temple, so much so that not one stone is left on another. Jesus prophesies it. It happens in just 40 years later. With that happening, does that mean that the indignation is over? Or did the indignation in Daniel point to a different kind of tribulation that would approach and be awaiting the saints? Let's look at the next passage. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my sake. As if to say, there is a season of time coming worse than the exile of God's people from the promised land. There is a season of time of trial coming worse than the indignation. Jesus is saying, quoting Daniel, that what he was speaking of is still yet to come. This is the only time Jesus and the New Testament quotes Daniel explicitly, just so we would know that we find ourselves, even today, in this story. Let's look at the passage about the nature of this ruler. He says this just verses later. This is all the same chapter. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So during this time of tribulation, there will be one that comes. And the abomination of desolation isn't just a moment, it's a person. In the same way Antiochus came into the Holy of Holies and sacrificed a pig this unclean animal 
in that altar, there will be another one who comes and he doesn't sacrifice any kind of swine. What does he do? He enters into what it would seem as a reconstructed temple. And he himself declares himself to be God above all gods and no one else can worship anything else but him. This will happen. If God could predict the rise and the fall of all of these empires, if this is future, this is a matter of not if, but a matter of when. In fact, as we look at this next passage, it tells us more about this beast, this ruler, this man of lawlessness. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, this antichrist, is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. When this happens, and we don't know when, if anyone ever tells you they know the exact dates, say, well, Jesus said something about that. It's not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. Here's the truth. John describes it in this way. To say that one will come, as prophesied by Daniel, as prophesied by Jesus and Paul, one will come who will be the Antichrist. But there's also been many Antichrists before him. In fact, the whole world without Christ is Antichrist. As we do our daily duties, as we live our lives, as we raise our families, as we by God's grace do the best we can to do the most we can with what we have, what does it mean that you're part of this story. 10,000 verses in your Bible are related to prophecy. 50%, half of them, have not come to fruition. What does it mean that we understand prophecy, we understand God's word, and we come before him saying, God, what's my part? What are you calling me to do? Is it now to understand it so I can be prepared? You know what made the storm on Thursday so difficult? People were stranded because they were not prepared. People were not ready for the storm. Why is there prophecy in Scripture? So when the storm comes, you won't be surprised, you won't be ready, and when the world says everything's falling apart, you could say, no, thank God. God's Word says everything's falling right into place. Angel Gabriel gave this revelation to Daniel. He also gave it to a young girl who was born, about to give birth to a baby named Jesus, a virgin whose son would come to inaugurate the kingdom. But when Jesus returns, he's not returning as a fragile infant little baby. He's not returning as a broken man on a cross. He's returning as our risen, reigning king. And he comes to bring his right justice. Do you know him? Do you trust in God's word and God's son more than the world's wisdom and this age that is antichrist? The invitation is yours. The response is yours. Would you choose Jesus?
Let's pray together, church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you are a good, gracious God, and we thank you, Lord, for prophecy. We thank you, God, for every part of your Bible. And Lord, I pray that this would fill us with an awareness that you sit as the reigning ruler over all history, that all history truly is your story. So God, right now, we ask that you would give us grace, you would grant us humility, you would give us the ability to lay down our own kingdoms so we could not only follow King Jesus now, but we could say with the saints of all, Maranatha, Maranatha, Jesus, please return. Colts at Community Church in a spirit of prayer, I want to invite you to please rise. Let's stand together, shall we?